0: If you have your Bibles with you, I'll be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 17, and although we'll be going through the entire passage, I'm going to read from verses 32 to 51. Verse 32, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head." "'Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army "'to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, "'and the whole world will know "'that there is a God in Israel. "'All those gathered here will know "'that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, "'for the battle is the Lord's, "'and he will give all of you into our hands.'" As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. And this is God's word. Uh, we have a we have a series, and uh, the series was really in- injected, inserted because as part of the ethos of Metro, we want to take a brief moment to start the year to address Metro's emphasis on the importance of character over competence. It's not that competence isn't important; it's that character is most important, and it's it's very important because if you look at our growth rate right now, uh, one out of four people in our church today are new. And so it's very important that we all come to understand this incredible uh, truth and reality that character is always more important than how good you are at what you do. That's very counterintuitive. It's a very counterintuitive thought. Now, last week we learned that the Spirit of uh, God came on David. And what the Spirit of God does when it comes upon you, essentially when you become a Christian, is it gives you a boldness. David was not a king because he was bold. He became bold. Very important to know because even though we live in a very advanced culture, technologically advanced, educationally advanced, scientifically advanced, we are the most anxious and depressed generation in the history of the world. And this is universal. All over the world, scholars and commentators are commenting on the nature of our society and how anxious and ridden with depression it is. Very important. So this passage teaches us how to get courage, real courage. And it's probably one of the most famous passages, probably the most famous passage in the Old Testament, and certainly one of the most misinterpreted passages in the entire Bible. Three things that we're going to learn today: one, what is courage; two, what's the natural way we deal with uh, fear. And lastly, how do you get then, how do you get real and lasting courage? What is courage? What's the natural way we deal with our fears? And then how do you get real and lasting courage? First, what is courage? Verse 3. It's not in your bulletins, but it's in your Bibles. Uh, I'm going to kind of set the stage for you. The Philistines are on one hill. The Israelites, Israel is on another hill. They're staring each other down. And between them, there's a valley because it's two hills. So right between them, there's a valley. And uh, you see, the Philistines and the Israelites, uh, they were at war, constantly at war. They're enemies of each other. And so there they set up these battle lines. And if you go to where these battles uh, took place, uh, these conventional wars that took place back then, is a gruesome, gruesome scenario. You died there. It was bloody there. And these hills... Uh, that are facing each other cast a shadow in the valley, and so it's the valley of the shadow of death. The losing country in the battle uh, would become a slave to the winner, to the winning country. And so in verse 4, in the valley, Goliath appears. And Goliath, for all intents and purposes, relative to to the people that we saw in those days, he's a giant. He's tall. And in verse 10, he challenges Israel. And he says, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man. Let us fight each other. And verse 11, on hearing this, Saul, King Saul, and all the Israelites are terrified. If you look here, king, the king here, is not acting kingly. He's paralyzed. He's paralyzed with fear. He's come across something that he cannot overcome, insurmountable in his mind, paralyzed by fear. His army, paralyzed by fear. They are not kingly. In verse 16, 40 days go by. Whenever you see the word or the number 40, that usually means it's represented the entire, entirety of God's people. So 40 days have gone by, rain 40 nights, right? Israelites were in the wilderness 40 years Represented the whole church. This is a commentary that this is us. So the army is standing there 40 days. No one comes forward, paralyzed by fear. What is courage? In verse 32, David says to Saul, and he's very careful in how he words it let no one lose heart. Why does he say that? It's because everybody has lost heart. King Saul has lost heart. The actual text in Hebrew, he's basically, when David says, let no one lose heart, what he's saying is, let no one's heart run away from them. Let no one's heart fall away from them. Let us not be, uh, let us not lose courage. Let us not be discouraged. In other words, if you do the wrong thing, and if you're selfish, and if you run away, you're probably going to be safe. We've all figured out ways to protect ourselves, to defend ourselves, whether it's at work. Well, we have ways of covering over ourselves so that we are going to be safe. But sometimes, if you choose to do the right thing, if you choose to do the unselfish thing, you may or may not be safe. But if you do the right thing, regardless of the outcome, that's courage, regardless of the consequences. Regardless of risk, regardless of danger, regardless of the consequences, ancient cultures held up courage as a virtue. Why? Why? Because back then there was this disease. There were plagues. There were wars. Life was very insecure. Life is filled with uncertainty. Life is filled with danger. You couldn't live without courage, but think about it. You still need courage today. Why? Because there is disease. There are wars. Life is insecure. It's filled with uncertainty. Life is filled with danger and... As a result, there are different kinds of courage. For instance, think about it. Uh, you could be facing, different, uh, facing a physical pain, facing death. That takes one type of courage. But there are everyday moments that require courage. Everyday admitting your sin takes courage. Admitting that you're wrong, admitting your flaws and your weaknesses in your relationships and in your marriage, coming clean, that takes courage. A certain type of person, only a certain type of person can do that, and that's every day. Every time you let the pressure of your friends or your jealousies, your selfishness, every time you let uh, your need for approval take over, dictate a a single moment in your life, that's fear. Most of us live out of fear. Now, you may say, well, I don't really care what people think about me, then why do you work like crazy to outdo people at work or to outdo people at school? And we give in to all sorts of sexual pressures and social pressures because we don't want to lose approval. That's fear, you see? And, we, and in fact, you know, many of us are in relationships longer than they should. Many of us are in jobs or careers that make us miserable, and we're in those jobs or our careers longer than we really need to be. Why? Because of fear, Now, there are people out there who will say, come on, really? I mean, you're going to compare peer pressure with uh, guns and war, what David went through? Absolutely. You know why? Because there are people in this room that would rather die than be humiliated. That's why. There are people in this room that would rather die than lose face in front of their peers. The greatest nightmare in our lives oftentimes is not physical death. It's humiliation. Or a loss of approval, and so we're willing to do anything. We're willing to do everything to avoid the greatest nightmares in our lives. I'm going to give you an example. Uh, there are parents in this room who are so afraid of losing ground at work. Whatever work it is that you do, we overwork, and as a result, we neglect our children. Why? You're giving in to your fear. Because your fear of losing security, your fear of losing wealth, your fear of losing your place in the world is more important right now than losing your child. And you always think you can get back your children when really you can get back your work. That desire for approval that you had when you were a teenager, that desire for approval, it's very strong. That desire for approval that we have when we're, that, that need for acceptance when we, have, when we were teenagers, it's now transferred to this need to get your boss's approval, to get your coworkers' approval. We're cowards. Some of you can't say no to your boyfriends. Some of you can't say no to your girlfriends. You can't say no to your spouse. You can't say no to your children. You can't say no to your couch or your bed or your food. You can't say no to your diet or to your looks or to your syllabus or to your figures or to your books. And it makes us self-absorbed and it makes us self-centered. It kills relationships. You want to think about the single greatest factor destroying your relationships not right now is not the selfishness of the person next to you. Well, it could be it's your selfishness because you can't see it. You're, not, you're too afraid to admit it. You're too afraid to handle it, to address it. It's fear. It's why fear is a rival. It's an enemy of love. It's why the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. Fear makes us only think about ourselves. Fear doesn't let us think about other people. And it's easy to justify because we're saying, you know, we say, I'm doing this for you. I'm, this is for us. I'm working hard for you. When it's really not, you're doing it for yourself because of your fear. We're slaves to fear. That's Saul. He's a slave to fear. He's a king, but he's a slave. That's Israelites. That's Israel. That's who we are. The essence of courage is what? Confronting your heart's greatest nightmares and doing the right thing no matter what. That's courage. What's the natural way? That's the second point. What's the natural way of dealing with our fear? Now, this is where the misinterpretations come, and we're going to kind of talk about this throughout the sermon. I used to think that growing up that David is this brave hero. David is brave. David is a hero, and Goliath is the coward, and he's the weaker one. But in verse 4, it actually says Goliath is the champion. There was a champion named Goliath. You know what that means? Both David and Goliath, they're both heroes. They both have courage. They just have two different types of courage. And this is huge because most of us study this text like this. Goliath represents all of our biggest fears. And David represents how you're supposed to handle your fears you're supposed to attack your fears. You're supposed to run at your fears. You're supposed to confront them and fight them. you got to be like David. you got to grow up, trust God, be humble, confront those big giants in your life. That's what it means to be courageous. But look at this. In most ancient texts, you almost never receive the kind of details, the way you see the details that the author wrote about Goliath like you see in this chapter, Writers are very economical. Those ancient writers, those ancient storybooks, those ancient stories, uh, narratives, all fictional. If you look at these ancient narratives, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, big epic battles. Very, very little detail. Writers are very economical in those days. uh, And there's lots of reasons for that, especially with their descriptions. But here, Goliath is given a very detailed description. Verses 4 to 7, you see his height in cubits. He had a bronze helmet. He wore a, a coat of scale armor made of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. That's about 125 pounds. He had bronze on his legs, bronze on his grease, a bronze javelin. He had a spear shaft, an iron point, lots of detail. Why? What does that mean? Because you think it's there for drama. You think it's there for embellishment. That's what I used to think, but that's not really the reason why. Robert Alter, he's a professor of the University of Berkeley, uh, and uh, he uh, is a Hebrew Bible scholar, one of the most famous and probably most notable Hebrew Bible scholars today. He says regarding the description of Goliath, it's very unique in all of ancient Hebrew literature. And this is what he says. Goliath moves into action as a man of iron, a man of steel, a man of iron and bronze, an almost grotesquely quantitative embodiment of a hero. And this is a hulking monument to an obtusely mechanical conception of what constitutes power. Robert Hultz is basically saying, Goliath represents an obtusely mechanical conception, a very rote, kind of misconstrued conception, one-dimensional of what power and courage really are. We are obsessed with externals. We are obsessed with figures. We look at athletes, and we are obsessed with their figures and the way they look and their workout routines. And it distorts our view of what courage really is. Courage. We look, we desire to look like Goliath. We desire to have the confidence of Goliath. We don't admit that because Goliath is a bad guy in this text. But look at how we live our lives. The way we compare ourselves to others, we want to be Goliath. And it's very interesting. Goliath represents a natural, worldly way of viewing courage. How? Several ways. A couple ways, I'm going to lay them out for you. One, he's gifted. He's talented. He's a physical specimen. He was born with it. He was tall, and we learned that being tall back then meant that you were a leader. It embodied strength and power. He was an imposing figure. And and Saul, Saul bought into it. Saul himself was tall, taller than others, his peers. But he bought in. Verse 33, King Saul, he says, you can't beat him, essentially. That's what he's saying. You can't beat him. Look at him. You're young, and he's experienced. He's gifted. He's talented. What do you bring to the table? David? He was largely overlooked, overshadowed by seven other brothers. Jesse, his father, didn't even bring him to the table, didn't even bring him to the home to be anointed as king because he was so disregarded, so largely overlooked, no one cared for much of his gifts. He watched his father's sheep during those 40 days. He watched his father's sheep, and he brought lunch to his brothers in the army. Totally overlooked. Why? Because back then when you chose a leader the first thing you do is you look at their gifts. And David being the eighth son, seven means perfection, seven means completion. David was the eighth son, totally disregarded, no gifts. No one even saw that God was training David in the wilderness while he was being overlooked. And verses 34 to 37, he says this, Saul, I killed a lion. I killed a bear. He describes coming before a lion and a bear and wrenching his sheep away. He wasn't going to let one sheep go. I killed a lion and a bear. I've learned to kill things much bigger, much faster, much stronger than a man. I've learned to defend. I've learned to protect. It was instinctive in his his life. And so God had been training David with all the instinctive skills that he needed to fight, to defend, to protect, and to lead gifts. We rely too heavily on our outward gifts. Number two, Goliath was advanced. He was trained since he was a boy. Verses 38 to 39, when Saul placed a tunic and the armor and the helmet over David, what did David say? I'm not used to these. I can't go in these. What does he take? What he's used to. A staff and a sling. Humble equipment. Very primitive equipment. Something that a poor person would use. Later, Goliath sees David and he sees what he's coming at him with. And what does he say? Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Am I primitive? Am I low? Is that how you view me? He was insulted. He was insulted because he came ready for battle. He was wearing the latest scale armor. He was wearing wearing bronze greaves. Bronze was really high tech. He had an iron point on a spear. This was before the Iron Age. Very advanced, technologically advanced. Number three, Goliath was confident. Oh, those gifts and the height and the and the training and the advancement. It made him very confident. Verse 42, the text says he looked David over, he sized him up, he measured him up. The author says, Goliath is gifted. He was trained. He was tall. He was a brute. He was advanced. And he looks at David, measures him up, and he's mocking him. And he says, Look at me. He's laughing. I'm twice your size. I'm strong. I'm powerful. Do you know what's going to happen to you? Do you know what you're about to experience? I am high tech. I'm advancing. You come at me with sticks. You are not ready for this. You have no idea. Goliath has no doubts. There's no evidence in this passage that he had any fears for that matter. There's no evidence that he, that he saw any danger. And that's the problem. That's the issue. This is how the world deals with fears. The world says you gotta protect yourself. The world says this is an area of risk in your life, so build a wall. Protect yourself. You may experience financial insecurity, build a wall around that. Make money. You gotta build, you gotta work out, you gotta be strong, you gotta accumulate. You've got to increase your potential, increase your options, increase your talent. Constantly learn. Rid yourself of your fears by attacking them head on. And so Goliath looks David over and he says, are you serious? This is a joke. And that's how most of us deals with patterns in our lives. It's patternistic in our lives. We encounter a situation, we assess, this is a joke or I can't do it. Saul says, I can't do it. Saul is just really a smaller version of Goliath because he's relying on his skills. He's relying on his, his physicality. He's relying on his gifts. He's relying on his education, what family he came from. That's not very different from many of us here in this room. That's not very different. Goliath is incredibly confident. Now, I don't want to minimize any good that can come from any one of these things, I'm not saying that any of those things are evil per se. What I want to share with you is that they are shallow and they are unsustainable and it's insufficient. Shallow, unsustainable, insufficient. What are some of the reasons why? One, Goliath was brave and he was very strong and he was very prepared and it made him very confident. And so what happens here? He was blind to the one thing that he needed to survive. The one thing that he needed to make it out of the valley of the shadow of death, the one thing that he needed to win was a 360-degree view of reality so that he would not underestimate the situation, the circumstance, and so that he would not overestimate himself. He needed the one thing which was a 360-degree view of reality. There was a danger. David, he had a 360-degree view because he is flawed, because he is weak. Very well aware of the danger walking into the valley of the shadow of death. Goliath, after looking David over, became even more blind. He was drunk with pride, drunk with self-confidence, drunk with self-reliance, drunk over his gifts, drunk over his IQ in battle, drunk over his, his, uh, his training and his readiness. And that's why He was blind, and that's why his judgment was impaired, and that's why he's in danger. What does fear do? You know what fear does? Fear, very disproportionate. The whole reason why it's called fear is because it's usually bigger than reality. But the one thing that fear does is it wakes you up to reality. It magnifies your realities to a degree that you can't contain yourself. That's what fear is. Otherwise, it wouldn't be fear real fear is disproportionate but it wakes you up it wakes you up to the reality that your situation where you are is dangerous so to just get rid of your to get rid of fear <clears throat> to think that you can protect yourself with armor and weaponry is like relying on a sugar high to get you through a marathon it's insufficient it's unsustainable it's never going to help you do the right thing when the real wave of pressure hits We all compromise and justify our actions and responses when the real pressure hits. And it comes in waves. There's one thing cascading into the next, usually to the next, and it usually starts to mount. And maybe your guess will get you by the first wave, which is why we're under the mirage. We're under the imagery of thinking that we can actually get through the rest of the waves of pressure until the next wave hits. And now you start to compromise. And you'll find in your intelligent way of doing so, because we've been doing it for 25 or 30 or 40 years, a way of justifying why we compromise. But in the end, we're never able to do the right thing when it counts. And so we're incredibly fearful. We're cowards. When a perfect storm hits, and friends, it's going to hit. It's going to hit all of us. If it hasn't already, and if it happens when you're younger, there are gonna be other storms later on. I mean, that's reality. You know, it's gonna hit. Most of the time, we're like Saul, looking over the situation and saying, I can do it or I can't do it. The enemy's too great. I can't win this. And so, any ounce of courage that we have dries up because we cannot escape the reality of the real giants in our lives. And so, in a sense, you don't want to disengage from your fears because then you're like Goliath, completely disengaged from our fears, blind to reality, when you actually need reality to act. You need a view of reality to act. Everyone here has some Goliath-like Fear, the greatest nightmare in their lives, whatever it is, and we try to battle them. We try to attack them by being like Goliath, by being like Saul, try to build just enough talent and wealth and a reputation. And so that's why we go for promotions and that's why we, we want to grow our family and we want to buy our homes and we want to get friends and this is the armor that we're looking for. This is the shield that's going to protect us. Oh, And the Bible says that kind of courage falls short when you face the real Goliath, that next wave in your life where talent is not enough, unsustainable and not enough, and your education will not train you to be ready for these things, and your wealth isn't enough because wealth can't buy the most important things in your life. Wealth will not be able to buy your family back. Your wealth will not be able to buy time back your wealth will never be able to buy health. You understand that? The most important things in your life cannot be bought, cannot be earned even. All insufficient. Now, growing up, I was tempted to think that, wow, David must have been brave. He must have been incredibly brave. And it says here, because it says in verses 45 to 47, you come at me, with uh, a sword and a spear and javelin but i come at you i come against you in the name of the lord almighty Now, we grew up being taught, if you have a faith like David, if you trusted God like David, then God's going to work in your life, and you're going to have courage to defeat all the giants in your life. So go at those giants. Just pray and be humble and trust, and you can handle all those big giants. You get that? Have you heard that? Is that that what you learned when you grew up? I hope not, but I know that most of us probably have. Friends, I'm going to tell you, that's the religious version of becoming like Goliath. That's the religious version of getting courage because if you look at yourself and you say, I'm just going to have faith. If I just trust God, I'm just going to obey and do what he asks me to do. Then he will come and help me when I need, right? Because that's the lesson of David. Trust God, be humble, and go attack your giants. If I can just trust God, if I just obey what God says, then he will help me. Then he will protect me. That's still armor. And so what happens is when you get defeated, you say, but I trusted you. And I gave my life to you. And I obeyed you. And you failed me. That's why we leave. We, you know, we have a generation of Asian Americans. We have a generation of just people in this generation leaving the church in droves because that's what they were taught. And they think God has failed them. And the thing is, in reality, we failed. Our, the ministry and, and the church has failed to really faithfully teach what this passage is really about. And so we're still trying to deal with our fears on our own. You know, that's what religion does, is that when you just trust God and obey, then he will help me. Um, You're really trying to deal with your fears on your own. And so your armor is obedience, and your armor is goodness, and it still will never be enough to sustain the waves of pressure that will come down. We're trying to be like David, but we're actually, trying to, we're actually becoming like Goliath because that's not what David was doing. And when he said what he said, that's not what he was saying. It's why just being religious is very different from being a Christian. It's why just being, a, just being religious is very different from what the gospel is. It's why just being religious will actually turn you away from God, not bring you closer to God because it doesn't work. Did God ever promise to you that he will protect you if you pray? Is that what God promised? I hope none of you were misled to thinking that that is true. Did God promise to protect you if you pray, if you obey him? Because look at his own son, Jesus. Did he not pray? Did he not obey? He was the most obedient person to ever live He prayed, he obeyed, he trusted, he was faithful in everything. And did everything go well for him? No, he died. So the lesson can't be, be like David. It can't be. You see that? In fact, this is why this passage is so important because it teaches you how to really get courage. So how do you really get courage? A lasting courage, a real courage. We're not going to apply the text the way I thought we were supposed to as children. Don't try to be like David. You can't be like David. You can't just charge at giants like that. You want to apply this text? You got to start by asking you, who are you in this text? Are you David? No, we're not David. We're the cowards. We are Saul. We are the Israelite army. We are Goliath. We need somebody to rescue us who will go into the valley, the valley of the shadow of death. Look, God didn't send us an example, right? He didn't just send an example for us because David as an example, David as a coach means we're the ones that, who have to fight. We're the ones, and we're cowards. We can't fight. We're Saul. We're paralyzed with fear. Everything that we do when we're afraid is usually a worldly way, a natural way of responding to our fears. Even if you're trying to act confident, you're being Goliath. You're being Saul, you see. That's what's going on. The text isn't here to inspire us to fight Goliath in our lives with our own strength. He's trying, trying to be like, David, is only going to discourage you more. Your heart is only going to fall away more. Your heart is only going to run away more. Because you don't have a real courage that supports you in all the realities of life that cascades your way. God didn't send us an example, He didn't just send us a coach. He sent us a replacement, He sent us a substitute. Now, I used to read this passage. As I'm, as you, you don't have to adjust your eyes or your contacts or your glasses. I'm not an imposing figure. I used to read passages like this for inspiration, but think about this. Homer's Odyssey, if you really read it and understand it, is inspirational. I mean, here's Odysseus, this great warrior. His wife is suffering on that island by herself with her son. Her son is waiting out every day, waiting for his father to come home. And Penelope is, is home and she's lost control of her home. There are 40 haughty suitors, or is it 400? I forget. 40 or 400? coming in and they're just eating and drinking trying to get with her essentially and she's trying her best in her very crafty way she's trying to be flirting enough to keep them away until because she knows deep inside when my husband comes home there will be hell to pay and she's losing faith and Telemachus is losing faith and they're just waiting and waiting and waiting story sounds familiar Odysseus walks in and uh, you see a description of the battle. There's blood everywhere. It's a bloodbath. Every one of those suitors die. And Odysseus walks in like it was nothing. He comes in. He's a warrior. He just comes in, and he just whack, 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 whack. And it's very descriptive. It's disgusting, right? Stories like that are inspiring. You want to be like that, right? That's how the world teaches us. This is what courage is. This is what it means to be a warrior, But David's story is completely different than these stories, isn't it? I mean, how is it different? We know, we see how it's different. Number one, David wins through weakness. He doesn't win through his strength. David is, I mean, he's told over and over, you're the eighth son. You're weak. You are young. You are inexperienced. You are small. And David himself, he's not, he doesn't sit there and say, I can handle it. Give me that armor. That's not what he says. Saul tries to put the armor on him, and he says, I can't do this. I can't put this on. I can't I can't walk around in it. That's what he says, right? And but his victory doesn't come in spite of his weakness. I used to think that too, that God took this very weak guy and to show how strong he was in spite of David's weakness. God would show himself very, very strong. And he does. It's not less than that, but it's so much more than that because God didn't save David and David did not win in spite of his weakness. David was victorious, David won because he was weak. God didn't use David by saying, oh my gosh, this is all I got? All right, I'm gonna have to try. Here we go. That's not what he did. God chose David, remember? And he chose him because he was weak. Number two, this is the key. David came as a substitute. Verse 8 and 9, which is not in your bulletins, the author says that Goliath cries out, Choose one man and have him come down to me. In ancient times, because to avoid the bloodbath, you chose one person. That person is your champion, he is a legal representative for the strength and the power and the courage of the entire army which means that he is the legal representative of the strength and the power and the courage of the entire country. And so here's David walking into the valley. He's not just fighting for his people. He's fighting as his people. And it's why Goliath says, if he kills me, we will become your subjects. We will become your slaves. What that means is if David is courageous... Israel is courageous. God's people is courageous. If David goes into the valley, that's the same thing as God's people entering into the valley. If David wins, that means that God's people get everything David deserved. If David wins, that means they win. And so what happens to David is transferred. The actual theological term is imputed. If whatever happens to David is imputed in union, With his people. Very important. Why? Because the author of Hebrews. In some ways is directly tied to this passage. In chapter 13 when he says. Let us fix. It's printed in your word of encouragement. And after going through this. I hope it really does encourage you. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. Now let me break this down for you a little bit. The word author. Means. It's the Greek word arch-egos, arch-ego. And the word perfecter of your faith, perfecter, is the Greek word teleos, finisher. So I'm going to read this again. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Behold Christ doesn't take any work to behold something. You don't have to work to look at something, right? You just look. So he says, you don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. Just look and behold the beauty of Jesus, who is the arch ego and the finisher of your faith. What does that mean? You're like, what does that mean? What is an arch ego? You know what an arch rival is, right? An arch nemesis is, right? That's the greatest version of your enemy. He's like the perfect counter-opposite of all of your strengths, so he can counter it with his strengths. That's what an arch rival is. So what's an arch ego? He is the perfect version of you. He is the perfect version of everything that you embody and aspire to be. Everywhere you're weak, he's greater. Everywhere you're strong, he's stronger. That's what an arch ego is. Okay? He is your substitute. The Greek word translated is champion. Goliath was the arch ego of his country david was the arch ego of his and when the author of hebrews reflects he says you behold jesus who is your arch ego who will go into the valley for you that's what he's saying the arch ego for the church the word perfecter right teleos right means finisher that means Jesus Christ is our champion, the way David was to Israel. That means he won, and because he won, for all time, for us, we won. He is our legal representative, and he won. David was the legal representative for Israel, and he won. Jesus is our legal representative, and he won. Jesus Christ is the ultimate David. Jesus Christ came in strength, no, he came in weakness, in a manger. Jesus Christ came vulnerable. Jesus Christ didn't put on armor when he went to the cross. He actually emptied himself. In fact, he was stripped of all of his clothing, taken off. And he didn't save us in spite of his weakness. He saved us through his weakness. Because he was weak, we could be saved. He didn't save us from physical death. He saved us from eternal death. He didn't rescue us from physical slavery. He rescued us from the slavery to sin our slavery to death. And he didn't save us at the risk of his life. You know, David, he saved his people at the risk of his life. Jesus saved us at the cost of his life. David went into the valley of death, but Jesus Christ went into the ultimate valley of death and he won through weakness and he was crucified and he died and he was buried and he paid the penalty of all of our sins what's your greatest nightmare losing love losing your reputation losing your wealth losing your life losing your family your children the, the loves of your life face any trial like a giant on your own and basically when you're saying what you're saying is If I lose these things, then I've lost my joy and I've lost my freedom. It's like being in hell. But look how hard we're working to finish. Look how hard we work to perfect on our own. Look how hard we're working to finish and perfect, to protect the things that we love the most. You're a slave. And that's why you're driven by your anxieties. And that's why you're up at night. And that's why your dreams turn to nightmares. And that's why you work hard to avert those nightmares. And that's why when you experience those nightmares, you get depressed. You see how that works? But Jesus Christ is on the cross. Hebrews 13 says, Behold Jesus. Fix your eyes, your gaze on Jesus. Behold Christ. Here's Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everyone around him is doing what? Mocking him, the way Goliath was mocking David. Get down. You think you're strong? Show yourself. Prove yourself. Be yourself. Be who you say you are. And the wrath of God is just pouring out on him, pelting him. And right there he says, I'm weak. I'm forsaken. Jesus Christ lost the Father. Jesus Christ lost his God. He was experiencing in that moment his greatest nightmare. The Father and I are one. Trinity and I, together we are one. He was experiencing his greatest nightmare, and that is his Father, forsaking him, separated from God, the ultimate hell, total separation from God on the cross. And yet, do you know, in Gethsemane, knowing everything that he was going to experience to the point where he says, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That means he experienced two deaths as he was going to the cross already. Knowing everything that would happen, Jesus prayed, not my will, yours be done. He did the right thing, knowing it would bury him. He still did the right thing. No matter the consequence, no matter the risk, he did the right thing. He obeyed. That, friends, is courage. He obeyed, and he went to the cross, and on the cross he said, I am finished. I am done. And yet through that weakness, he says, it is finished. It is finished. He obeyed perfectly, and so Jesus Christ is the author, the arch ego, your champion, and the perfecter. He finished it. You're trying to. We're constantly trying to finish on our own. Behold, Jesus. He finished it. Jesus Christ is the arch ego and the teleos the arch-ego, the champion, and the finisher. And so he says, I am the beginning, and I am the end. I am the one who goes before you, and I am the one who will come back for you. I am the alpha, and I am the omega. I am the champion. And so he faced a gigantic wrath of God, the ultimate Goliath, and he defeated death through his death as our substitute, and because he won, we win victory look at the beauty of jesus behold look at the courage of jesus it doesn't take courage to behold it just take seeing let it move you to a joy that will set you free tim keller he says on courage courage is not the absence of fear it is the presence of joy what does that mean Because what he's saying is that a real joy says I can have heart. I don't have to run. I can confront my fears because these fears compared to what Jesus Christ has suffered, the only thing that could ever truly ruin me has already been confronted and defeated. I can face these fears no matter what happens. Regardless what happens to me, it can never end me completely. That's courage. What sustained, what enabled Jesus? You ever think about that? What enabled Jesus to be able to say that? Hebrews chapter 13, if you read the rest of that word of encouragement, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the arch ego and the perfecter of our faith, the finisher of our faith, who for what? In the same way, the joy set before him. Because of a joy, the presence of joy, there was an absence of fear right? The fear has departed, right? He can face the fear. There's a presence of joy, the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. Jesus Christ at Gethsemane, overwhelmed to the point of death. Then why did he do it? What compelled him to do it? And our word of encouragement tells us he had a joy. I mean, what thing did he lack that would compel him to do it? For us, we say, what's my incentive? If I'm going to risk myself, what do I get out of it? What did Jesus get out of it? What was the joy that would set before him that would compel him to suffer the way he did? And the answer is you. You are that joy. You are that treasure. Isaiah 53, a prophetic song about Jesus. He says, I will be satisfied. I will have joy. I will be glad. After all the sufferings that Isaiah lays out that Jesus will endure, He says, I will be satisfied at the justification of many, the salvation of you. Seeing us rescued was his joy. Seeing us justified is his joy. And to the degree that you trust that, that you are his joy and that you are his treasure. He will become your joy. You will be able to behold his beauty and it will give you courage in the presence of all of your troubles. You can face the smaller nightmares in your life, no matter how big they are. They are small compared to the ultimate nightmare that Jesus endured for you as your champion and emerged victorious. You can face your fears with courage because you know that you cannot lose ultimate love even if you lose worldly love. You will not lose worldly wealth because you have ultimate wealth. You will not lose your ultimate reputation that you have in Jesus. So you can risk losing your reputation here. Psalm chapter 23, verses 1 to 6. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in one. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness, the right thing, doing the right thing for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because there's a presence of joy because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table, a table, before my enemies. You anoint my head with oil my cup overflows because surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Will you pray that prayer? Make that your prayer today. Let's pray.